Now, have you ever read a book because of the title? You know, some titles of books sound really exciting, don't they? You know, they speak of adventure, they speak of exploring, all sorts of things like that. Uh, I know sometimes, especially when I was younger, I used to look at the front, of, front cover of books, and if you saw things really exciting happen, uh, then you'd go for that book. Uh, the book of Numbers is sort of the opposite, uh, really. Most people don't read this book because of the title. Uh, unless you're a maths enthusiast, I know there are people at least with us this evening. In fact, wow, we're actually doing quite well. We're two former maths teachers and uh, some other maths enthusiasts this evening. Maybe, you know, your first book of reading the Bible was the book of Numbers. Um, but it doesn't exactly sound like a riveting title, uh, does it? It's sort of like a book that sounds like accounting for beginners, doesn't it? That sort of thing. You don't really uh, want to be apology for any accountants uh, with us this evening. Only trombones. Only trombones, okay. Sorry, the original title, though, of Numbers is In the Wilderness. That's what it's known in Hebrew. And Into the Wilderness sounds much more exciting, doesn't it? And actually, it's far more descriptive of what the book is actually about. Out of the 36 chapters, only three of them have those lists of numbers that we associate with the book. It's just that those chapters make up chapters 1 and 2. It always makes you wonder whether the person who gave it the name in Greek sort of got in two chapters in and sort of gave up. Uh, part way through, I'll call it numbers, and then moved on. But the rest of the book recounts the Israelites' wanderings in the wilderness. And many of the stories in my head that should be in Exodus are actually in numbers. And the books actually have really similar storylines, if you follow them, and have a lot of similarities. That they form a sort of sandwich around Leviticus that sort of puts that at the top. And then right at the centre of Leviticus is the Day of Atonement, to put that right in the centre uh, of the first five books of the Bible. But it's got stories like Joshua and Caleb spying out the land, the cursing of the Israelites to wander 40 years in the wilderness, Balaam and his donkey, Aaron's staff pudding, the bronze serpent, Moses striking the rock twice. All these stories in my head, sort of, are I know they're somewhere in the Pentateuch, and I often associate them with Exodus, but they're actually in the book of Numbers. If it happens in the wilderness, chances are it happens in the book of Numbers. Numbers is the wilderness years, if you like, for the Israelites. And the book is built around three journeys and three stays. Um, do you have the <laughs> right. Um, so three journeys and three stays. Um, so uh, really it's, it's following this plot of moving along, going to certain places and then moving along to other places. And they sort of stop three times on their journey, a bit like they actually do uh, in Exodus. But we could sum up the book in three words. Hope despite failure. Hope despite failure. The big thing that happens is that people fail to enter the land. Yet God gives them grace and hope, even as they wander about in the wilderness. So we're going to look at four points briefly to see how the book of Numbers pans out. So first of all, soldiers and symbols. Soldiers and symbols. Soldiers and symbols. So the numbers that give the book its name are actually to do with the counting of potential soldiers. So uh, Numbers 1, uh, verses 2 and 3. It says, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, by fathers' houses according to the number of names, every male head by head, from 20 years old and upwards, all in Israel who are able to go to war, 
you, should, you and Aaron shall list them company by company. So this isn't an exercise in bureaucracy. It's not that somebody sat down and thought, oh, we should have a census. It's not a paper-pushing thing. It's actually gauging the nation's military strength in preparation for entering into the promised land. And in the original plan, so to speak, there was no 40-year journey in the wilderness. It doesn't take 40 years to cross the desert that they're in. It actually only takes a few days or a couple of weeks. What they're doing here is getting ready for war. They've just come out and they're getting ready for war. And we see that they're amply prepared. The one thing that list of names and numbers gives you is the idea, actually, there are loads of them. There are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of soldiers ready to go. Which just makes the book even more tragic if you think about it. Because actually they were amply prepared to take the promised land. When we get the count at the end of the book, the next time the sort of numbers come up, we find out that the next generation is roughly the same size. And they're the generation that actually go in and take the promised land. So size-wise, they weren't too few. Because the book of numbers tells you that at the end they were basically the same size as when they were at the beginning. So after the opening section, though, the book turns to the arrangement in the camp. It tells you there are loads of them, and it tells you how they were to be arranged in the camp, where everyone was to go. And uh, this is how it sort of worked out. You've got the, uh, the tent of meeting right in the middle. You've got the tabernacle. And then around the tabernacle uh, were the people. Um, first of all, there were the priests. And then afterwards, there were the tribes. And in that, you get a picture of what the nation is to be like. The nation have to go through the priests to get to the tent of meeting. Even the way that they're arranged picks up on this idea of what we read in the book of Exodus and in the book of Numbers, that it's through the priests that they approach God. God is at the centre, but there are mediators in between the general people uh, and the the tabernacle in the centre. We also find out that there's a different layout when they go on march. So actually, the tent of meeting goes right in the middle of them again, but at the head now is not Reuben the eldest or Ephraim heir of Joseph, not even Levi, but actually at the head is Judah. Judah is pictured as the head or the leader of Israel, which we know with New Testament glasses on where we're going here, the great ruler that would arise from Judah. But here it's structured in the very layout of how they were to go to war. So you get these models, you get these symbols, and you get these soldiers. But while most of, uh, well, there's some really interesting sections about this, most of the book is made up uh, of rejection and rebellion, rebellion and rejection. We have one of them read uh, a little bit before, but in the 36 chapters, there are at least 10 rebellions. So it's sort of one per three chapters, really. The people moan about food, they pine for the delicacies of Egypt and the cucumbers and the melons and all the onions and... Which they almost certainly didn't need as slaves, if you think about it, in Egypt. It really is roast tinted glasses. They moan about water, they complain that they'll starve. God sends a plague to plague snakes of them. They rebel about going into the land, they refuse to go in. And when they're told then that they're not going to go in the land, they rebel and try and go into the land. They try and have it both ways. Miriam and Aaron rebel about Moses' choice of a wife, and Miriam gets leprosy. Korah the Levite and 250 leaders rebel against Moses and Aaron, and are swallowed up whole in the earth. Moses rebels against the Lord by striking a rock he's been told to speak to, spoiling God's picture of Christ. 
The biggest consequence is that after their refusal to go into the land, God curses them to walk around in the desert for 40 years until all the adults who refuse to go in are dead. All except Joshua and Caleb, who, uh, when they spied out the land, told the people that they were able uh, to get into the land. So the wilderness generation are rejected because of their rebellion. They may have made it out of Egypt, but they don't make it into Canaan. And the New Testament picks up this idea as an example of what not to do. It's there as a warning for us. So Hebrews 3, 12 to 19 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you with an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. For those who heard and yet rebelled, uh, sorry, for those who were, sorry, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled, was it not those who led Egypt, uh, led, left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. We see that they're an example. They don't believe that God can do it. They don't believe that God can give them the land. And so they perish without making it into the promised land. Don't be like them, says the author of the Hebrews. Their rebellion leads to rejection. And then thirdly, we see rules and regulations. Now we've got this with lots of books, haven't we, in the first five books. As with Exodus, the story is interspersed with laws and commandments. There are the duties of the priests and the laws about sacrifice that sound like they belong in Leviticus when you read them, but adds extra detail. There are laws about the redemption of the firstborn, where God swaps the firstborn of his people for the Levites, but the people then must redeem their firstborn. There's laws about adultery and unfaithfulness, very fitting if you think about the theme of the book. There are laws about special vows, such as the Nazarite vows, where someone could refrain from cutting their hair, eating grapes and hanging around with dead bodies. But we've not got time to go into that this evening. There are laws about wearing tassels on your clothes, murder and inheritance rights. It really is a bit of a hodgepodge uh, of Old Testament law. But they often link in with what's happening in the narrative of the book. You often find that it's to do with what's going on. So if you want to know how these laws apply, then I'd refer you back to another talk in Leviticus from last year, when we looked at those laws and how they apply now. But it would be similar to what we said in Exodus and Leviticus. Lastly, though, we have bronze serpents and blessings. Bronze serpents and blessings. Despite the repeated rebellions, there is blessing in the book. Although the original generation all die in the wilderness, God does not wipe out his people, which he could have done, couldn't he? He speaks to Moses like he's going to do that and start again with Moses. But God shows them grace. The next generation do go in with Joshua and Caleb. We see the way that God sends his judgment with things like snakes on the people, but we see as well the way God sends an escape from his judgment. So he provides a, a means of healing from those snakes. The bronze serpent is put on a pole, and the people are just to look to it to be saved. And amazingly, Jesus tells us that's a picture of him in the likeness of sinful flesh lifted up on the cross. Jesus says in John 3, 14 and 15, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, 
so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And there are a remarkable number of pictures of Christ in the book. So the rock that was struck in Exodus, that God tells Moses to talk to to get the living water, that's a picture of Christ who was struck once, so that now we can just approach him for living water. Of course, Moses spoils that, but that was the picture. Speaking to the Israelites in the wilderness, Paul, uh, speaking of the Israelites in the wilderness, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, and they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So actually, even the rock that they get the water out of is a picture of Christ. We see foretastes of the coming of the Spirit, too, as the Spirit is poured out, not just on Moses, but on 70 elders in Israel, who prophesied for a short time. Moses looked forward to our time when the Spirit is poured out on all God's people, when he says in Numbers 11, But Moses said, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would pour his Spirit on all of them. There are loads more places we could go for a blessing, couldn't we? The Aaronic blessing, the menorah lamp. But perhaps the most significant in the New Testament is the events surrounding Balaam. Now, we know Balaam from the talking donkey story, don't we? In fact, we get it in Sunday school, don't we? We've done it in one of our uh, alphabet A to Z of the Bible, uh, D for donkey. Um, It's quite a famous story. But really, the New Testament knows him not as the donkey guy, but as the guy who tried to use his gift of prophecy for money. That's probably what is referred to as Balaam's error in 2 Peter and Jude. Though in Revelation, he's linked to the rebellion... um, where they did things that they shouldn't have done with the Moabite women in Numbers 25. But as you read the account in Numbers, even though he tries four times, he's unable to curse God's people. He's unable to prophesy its defeat, but instead finds himself only able to bless God's people and prophesy its victory. He even prophesies that a great king will arise out of Israel, almost certainly referring to Christ. So Numbers 24, 17. I see him now, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab, and break down the sons of Sheth. We see by that that God is determined to bless his people, despite their rebellion. Even when kings hire people to curse them, God causes them to bless them. This really is grace in the face of failure, hope in the face of disaster. God will bring his promises to pass despite the sinfulness of his people. And that should encourage us, shouldn't it? Because that's still true. God still will bring his promises to pass despite the sinfulness of his people. And yet also the book is a warning. It should encourage us that our sinfulness does not hinder God, we're not thwarting God's plans, but it should warn us that actually we're not to rebel against our God. The generation we see in Numbers is the generation we are constantly, consistently to learn from and not be like in the New Testament. A huge chunk of Hebrews is taken up with this, as well as a section in Corinthians too. They're not our model, they're our anti-model, if you like. They're our do not go there, do not go anywhere near there. If you want to remember a number from the book of Numbers... Remember their ten rebellions. Remember zero out of ten for effort. We should not be like them. Psalm 95 at various points in Hebrews. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. That's in numbers. 
or you will find yourself in the wilderness spiritually or worse. You will not enter his rest like the generation who died in the wilderness. That's what the book of Hebrews wants to warn us. Do not go there. So Numbers is there to give us hope, yes. Hope despite sinfulness in the face of failure. But it's not there to be used as a license to sin and rebel. Or the warning is you could end up like them. The lesson the next generation uh, needed to hear, they need to press on. And the one that we need to hear too.